Genesis 33, Jacob reconciles with Esau. 33, verse 1. Then Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. And he put the maids and their children in front, and Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. But he himself passed on ahead of them and bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And he lifted his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, Who are these with you? So he said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maids came near with their children, and they bowed down. And Leah likewise came near with her children, and they bowed down. And afterward Joseph came near with Rachel, and they bowed down. And he said, What do you mean by all this company which I have met? And he said, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have plenty, my brother. Let what you have be your own. And Jacob said, No, please. If now I have found favor in your sight, then take my present from my hand, for I see your face as one sees the face of God, and you have received me favorably. Please take my gift, which has been brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have plenty. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us take our journey and go, and I will go before you. But he said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the flocks and herds which are nursing are a care to me. And if they are driven hard one day, all the flocks will die. Please let my Lord pass on before his servant, and I will proceed at my leisure, according to the pace of the cattle that are before me, and according to the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord at Seir. And Esau said, Please let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. And Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth and built for himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the place is named Sukkoth. Now, Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padanaram and camped before the city. And he bought the piece of land where he had pitched his tent from the hand of the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected there an altar and called it El Elohei Israel. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful for you. We thank you for your great love and care for us, your providence, and especially, Father, for granting us insight into your will by granting us this word, this word of Christ. We know it is reliable, it's true, it's our source of salvation, it's our only source of understanding our need for you and our sanctification day by day. We, Lord, gather as your people and gather as the, the family of God to worship and to understand you better. We pray, Father, that we will grow in faith, in love, in perseverance in all things, that we might please you, glorifying our, our Lord and Savior, living for him and being guided in all the way by your Holy Spirit. Teach us, Lord, your word, and teach us to endure until the end. And grant this faith not only to us, but to our families and to our churches, and even, Lord, for our nation. In the name of Christ, amen. 
Genesis 33. And this chapter is basically the end of a long journey that Jacob has had. He has been gone from his native land, the land of Canaan, for 20 years. And now he is returning. Remember in the previous chapter, he takes up his journey and God assures him of his presence to return, to give him safety in his return, and also a proper and, and uh, safe arrival in the land of Canaan. Well, one of the dangers that he faced, an imminent danger, potential danger, was meeting his brother Esau. After all, 20 years beforehand, Esau wanted to kill his brother because of the blessings that Jacob had taken away from Esau. But now, 20 years later, Jacob, he thinks of this threat. He knows that it's a real threat. And so he prepares himself. He prepares himself to be as congenial and brotherly as possible in order to avert any kind of threat, physical threat, to him and to his family. And he succeeds. This chapter presents a reconciliation between Jacob and Esau. Because Esau's perspective, Esau's demeanor, his stance towards his own brother Jacob had changed in those 20 years because of the work of God the work of God or the providence of God in the life of Esau. That's why it happened. We're going to see from this that there is reconciliation, but we need to make a clarification, which we will do in the next hour, a clarification in reference to the spiritual status of Esau, the spiritual status of Esau. Did Esau remain an unbeliever and die an unbeliever, or was he saved by this point in his life? Was he saved? Was he a believer? And was he a recipient of forgiveness of sins and eternal salvation? Yes or no? Well, first an exposition of the chapter, and then we'll proceed on to other subjects the next hour. 33, verse 1. Then Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel, and the two maids. And he put the maids and their children in front, and Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. As it said in the previous chapter, the messengers are reporting that there's going to be 400 men coming with Esau. And Jacob was naturally afraid. He thought that these were probably military men, soldiers, coming to attack Jacob and all that he owned. We find out in this chapter 33 that that actually did not happen. It was not the case at all that they came to attack. But in order to prepare for this attack, in verses 1 to 2, he prepares and divides his family according to his wives and his maids, Leah and Rachel and the two maids. He put the maids and their children first, then Leah after that, and Rachel and Joseph last. Rachel also bore Benjamin in chapter 35, but not yet here. Now, these children are anywhere from the ages of 6 to 12 or so years old. That's the number of children he had in the last uh, six years of his life in the land of Padan Aram outside of Canaan. So they are all youngsters. They are all women and children. They are not able to defend themselves. 
Now, some have questioned this position of the children and why it is that he would put the maids and their, their children first and so forth, and Rachel and Joseph last. Well, of course, if he's going to protect, he wants to protect his most beloved wife, which is Rachel, and her son, Joseph, which is what he does here. But it's not as though this man, Jacob, is a complete coward and is willing to jeopardize his whole family. Because look at verse 3, which is often underlooked, unnoticed, in verse 3, but he himself passed on ahead of them. Right. He passed on ahead of them. Right? In chapters 32 and 33, he prepares his family accordingly, putting one in front of the other, and his most beloved wife and son at the end. But it wasn't as though he was ready for all of them to be wiped out and for him to be left alone. No, he was not a complete coward. He went ahead according to verse 3. And it says, He passed on ahead of them and bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. He passed on ahead and bowed down. When he bowed down, he bowed down in respect. He did not bow down in worship of Esau, for that would have been a sin sin of idolatry. He did not bow down in worship of Esau. He bowed down in respect of Esau. This is one of the marks of respect that he shows to Esau. They kiss each other. They embrace each other. They weep. He calls Esau, my Lord. He calls himself your servant when he's speaking to Esau. We can see from this that Jacob is seeking to be friendly, congenial, cordial, and respectful to his brother. And this is his older brother, right? Though they were twins, Esau was the older brother. And that way too, he is respecting his brother and giving him his due place. Though Esau was an unbeliever, he still treated him with the respect that was due him. This is what he's doing. Now to clarify on the bowing down, look at chapter twenty. Three. Chapter 23, Genesis 23, verses 7 and 12. This is Abraham before the men of the land, and these men are unbelievers. And Abraham does the same. He bows down before them, and he would in no way be bowing down to worship them. He's bowing down to respect them because they are the authorities. They are the rulers of the place where he is seeking a burial site for Sarah. All right, so 23.7. So Abraham rose and bowed to the people of the land, the sons of Heth. 23.7. And Abraham bowed before the people of the land. He's bowing in respect and honor of them. He's not bowing because he's worshiping them. The same goes with Jacob. Now, when the Lord is being worshiped, the book of Genesis actually does make a distinction. When the Lord is being worshiped, it makes this distinction. For example, chapter 24. I don't think that Jacob is worshiping the Lord as he's approaching Esau, though 
I'm sure he's praying silently as he's approaching Esau. His bowing is bowing in respect, not bowing in worship. Because in chapter 24, we find examples. 24, 26 of bowing to worship the Lord. 24, 26. This is the servant of Abraham. Then the, ma- the man bowed low and worshiped the Lord. The object of his worship is mentioned there in 26. Also, 24, 48. And I bowed low and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has guided me in the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. And verse 52. And it came about when Abraham's servant heard their words that he bowed himself to the ground before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. So the context is what matters. The context and motivation of the the one who is bowing down, that is really what the issue is, not the actual action. The action of bowing does not itself indicate that. That's necessary because often by the actions and of Scripture and by taking verses out of context, people either accuse one or another of doing the wrong thing, of sinning in the midst of trying to be um, conciliatory, con- trying to make peace. They do things that are wrong and sinful. But I don't think that Jacob is being sinful here. So then it says in verse 3, he came, um, he bowed down seven times. Now, if this seven times is a literal seven times, it's uh, a way to express uh, completion and complete honor and admiration for his brother, that he is doing it in that way. Well, Esau receives him that way, verse 4. It says in verse 4, Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Esau ran to meet him is, is uh, significant because it's Esau approaching him. Jacob is approaching him and bowing down, but Esau sees Jacob and he runs to him. He runs, which shows that even Esau is eager for reconciliation. It's, it says he embraced him, fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. That means that Jacob is responding. He's being reciprocal in his concern or his endearment of Esau. Esau toward Jacob and Jacob toward Esau. They are doing it together. Then verse 5. And he lifted his eyes, Esau did, and saw the women and the children and said, Who are these with you? Who are these with you? Now, I'm sure Esau knew, but he wanted there to be an explicit answer so that they could pursue that question. And Jacob's answer is, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. The children whom God has graciously given your servant. He acknowledges, rightfully so, that children come from God. We know that to be the case because 
of earlier passages where the scripture teaches this very fact. When children are given as a blessing, notice it's graciously given, graciously given. We don't deserve the blessings we have, which include children, but when they are given, they are blessings of God, evidences of his grace to us. In Jacob's case, it was specifically noted in chapter 30, verse 2. Jacob knew the source. Chapter 30 and verse 2. We'll actually start at verse 1. Chapter 30, verse 1. Now, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she became jealous of her sister, and she said to Jacob, Give me children or else I die. Then Jacob's anger burned against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Jacob understood the source of children right there from God. Well, even Leah and Rachel knew this. Rachel and Leah. Look at chapter 30. Chapter 30 and verse 6. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me and has indeed heard my voice, which means she was praying. And she acknowledged that the child came from God. Chapter 30, verse 17. God gave heed to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then she said, God has given me my wages because I gave my maid to my husband. Verse 20, then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good gift. Chapter 30, verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel and God gave heed to her and opened her womb. Verse 24, and she named him Joseph, saying, May the Lord give me another son. They all know this, that these children come from God as the gifts of God. Well, They knew it, but we should also know it. It's not restricted to them to believe that children are a gift of God. It starts in Genesis 1.28. Before there's any sin in the world, it says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God blessed Adam and Eve, And he commanded them with the blessing, which is the first blessing, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Not only that, but after God destroyed the whole world and left only eight people in the world in the ark, Noah and his family, he told Noah and his family, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. And throughout Scripture, whether it's in the Psalms, such as Psalms 112 and 13, 127 and 128, and even in the New Testament, we read of passage after passage in the New Testament that assumes that children are a blessing from God and that that should be something we seek, seeking for a family. 1 Timothy 2, 15. 1 Timothy 2, 15. But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith in faith and love and sanctification with self-restraint. Women manifest 
their salvation in the caring of their children in the home. And this is accompanied by faith, love, sanctification with self-restraint. When they are faithful like that, it shows that they are godly. 1 Timothy 5.14 Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. Titus 2, 3 to 5. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. All these passages assume the same as Jacob did when he declared the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Further, we read Genesis 33, 6. Then the maids came near with their children and they bowed down. And Leah likewise came near with her children and they bowed down. And afterward, Joseph came near with Rachel and they bowed down. And he said, what do you mean by all this company which I have met? And he said, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. Let's pause right there. All of these women and children come and bow down. They're also showing respect and a desire for reconciliation, though they weren't the ones that caused the division between Jacob and Esau. They still want to be treated rightfully and respectfully by Esau. Well, they initiate this kind of respect by bowing down. But what is it? Not only are they showing respect, but they are also showing faith in the promises of God. They're also showing faith in the promises of God in the face of jeopardy. Yeah. Right? Remember? Remember what they said earlier? Um, they s- agreed to go with Jacob in chapter 32. They agreed to go with Jacob in chapter 32 when they said, 32, um, 32, and in verse uh, 9. 32.9, we first read of God's promise and then their reaction to it. 32.9 says, Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and the God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and to your relatives, and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me, the mothers with the children. For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. There, it's very clear that God's promise was to return and that he would be with them. Well, what about the daughters? The daughters, remember, they were also encouraged to go. 
And this we find in chapter 31, the daughters of Laban. Chapter 31, God had promised there too. And it says in 31.14, And Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, said to Jacob, Do we still have any portion or inheritance in our father's house? Are we not reckoned by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and has also entirely consumed our purchase price. Surely all the wealth which God has taken away from our father belongs to us and our children. Now then, do whatever God has said to you. God spoke to Jacob, told him to return, promised that he would be with him. And now Jacob's wives say, we know what God has said to you. And we are ready to submit to you and to do God's will with you. Well, in doing God's will with Jacob, they are also in danger of their own lives in case Esau wants to kill them. That's why when they approached in verses 7, in in verse 7, 33 verse 7, it's showing their willingness to risk it for the sake of the promises of God, for the sake of the truth, which is also characteristic of all of us. If we believe the word of God, we believe the promises of God, there's going to be opportunities, there's going to be times when we are tempted to deny Christ, fall away, not believe his promises, and we're going to come to a crossroads and need to stand up for him. 2 Corinthians 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore also we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Persevere in the face of danger because we believe in the promises of God. This exchange of the gift, this dialogue on the gift, we see from verse 8, Genesis 33, 8. And he said, What do you mean by all this company which I have met? And he said, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. 
But Esau said, I have plenty, my brother. Let what you have be your own. And Jacob said, No, please. If now I have found favor in your sight, then take my present from my hand, for I see your face as one sees the face of God. And you have received me favorably. Please take my gift, which has been brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have plenty. Thus he urged him, and he took it. This gift Esau notices, and Esau first, he is modest about it, and he rejects it. But Jacob insists, and therefore Esau takes it. And notice in verse 10, I see your face as one sees the face of God, and you have received me favorably. Also in verse 8, Jacob is explicit. He's honest about what he's doing to find favor in the sight of my Lord. This is the gift of God given to Jacob, and Jacob wants to use it to find favor in the sight of Esau, whom he calls my Lord. Jacob is not being deceptive and manipulative with the gift. He's forthright about his intentions. He tells him to find favor in the sight of my Lord, respectfully addressing him like that. As well, he knows that it's not Jacob's ingenuity, it's not Jacob's diligence, that's the ultimate source of all that Jacob owns. It's God's grace, which he acknowledges to Esau. He tells Esau the actual source of all of it. A man can receive nothing unless it has been granted him from above. John three twenty seven. What do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? First Corinthians four seven, and James one seventeen. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Jacob believed those words. He was not a proud and arrogant man. He knew that God gave him the strength and even God produced the crops of the earth. God is the one who even produced fruitfulness, offspring among his flocks of goats and sheep and cattle. After all, Jacob doesn't have control over all that. God does. Just like among men in families, God is the one who produces, brings about offspring or not. In all of this, in all of these ways, all of it comes from God. Jacob recognized it. And he wants genuine Reconciliation, such as Romans 12, 18. As far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. As far as it depends on you, pursue peace with all and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 12, 14. So that's Jacob's intention. Jacob is not deceiving and undermining and manipulating Esau. He's trying to make the best of the relationship that he can.
That's what he's attempting to do. Esau responds favorably, continues to do so. Verse 12, Then Esau said, Let us take our journey and go, and I will go before you. But he said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the flocks and herds which are nursing are a care to me, and if they are driven hard one day, all the flocks will die. Please let my Lord pass on before his servant, and I will proceed at my leisure, according to the pace of the cattle that are before me, and according to the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord at Seir. Jacob, he doesn't want to go with Esau with this legitimate reason, that is, that the children and the flocks might be pressed too much to go to Mount Seir or to the land of Edom, where Esau's descendants became a nation, which is outside of the land of Canaan. This is a valid reason. He says he's going to proceed at his leisure. It says in verse 14, which I take to mean that eventually he did go there. He's not lying. He eventually did go, but under better circumstances, he went to meet Esau and then um, bade him farewell to go and stay in the land of Canaan permanently. Um, a reminder, Sa'ir is the original name of that locality. It eventually became known as Edom, the nation of Edom, and Esau. Esau the patriarch, Edom as the name of the nation. But its first name was Seir or Mount Seir. And this is further explained in Genesis 36. Esau's lineage, Esau's territory, uh, and his tribes are all explained in Genesis chapter 36. uh, 33.15 And Esau said, Please let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. He returned to Seir after this offer of support. But Jacob denies it, rejects it, saying that there's no need for it. It doesn't say why, but perhaps he's trying to prevent any potential of conflict in the relationship. He doesn't want any more conflict and even any dependence on Esau. No conflict and no dependence on Esau because dependence on Esau could also bring about a conflict. He's trying to make sure that nothing happens for the rest of his life between him and Esau, which is good too. If you can avoid conflict, If it's unnecessary, then just avoid it. Verse 17. Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth and built for himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the place is named Sukkoth. Now, this place, Sukkoth, the name itself means booths, booths or houses. Um, It's also the name of the, the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. In the original language, it's called the Feast of Sukkoth, meaning booths. So this place, Jacob was able to acquire in order for him to stay there temporarily. This is on the east side of the Jordan River, and it would have been 
on the way to Edom. It would have been a convenient place on the way to Edom. He stays there for some time. But he, didn't, he did not stay there permanently. Perhaps he stayed there because that's where he uh, went temporarily before he went to Seir. And then after Seir, he goes to the land of Canaan, which is in verses 18 to 20. In 18 to 20, he finally does go back to Canaan. 18. Now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padanaram and camped before the city. And he bought the piece of land where he had pitched his tent from the hand of the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected there an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Firstly, verse 18, it says, Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem. The New American Standard Bible says safely. If you have the King James Version or another, it may say he came to Salem, and then it might say, comma, the city of Shechem. As though Salem and Shechem are the same place with two names, or Salem is a, a town near Shechem, one or the other according to the King James Version. Now, this word in the original language could be translated as a geographical name like Salem. Uh, not indicating Jerusalem, because this is not in the area of Jerusalem. In Psalm 76.2, Salem is a synonym for Jerusalem, Mount Zion and Jerusalem, but I don't think it is in this case because it's not in the region of Jerusalem. It's away from Jerusalem. Now, why is the New American Standard preferable? Because in chapter 28, 21, Jacob's vow included returning safely. Returning safely. Another word is used there, but it's still a desire to return safely. Chapter 28, 21, Jacob says, And I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. His concern when he left was the same all the way until the time he returned back. Therefore, I think that in 33, 18, Scripture is telling us that God did indeed permit Jacob to return safely to the land of Canaan. And then this city, Shechem, it was a city where Abraham resided back in the earlier chapters of Genesis, starting in chapter 12. Abraham did. This is on the west side of the Jordan River, 20 miles west of the Jordan in the northern uh, territory of the land of Israel, away from Jerusalem. He was able to acquire some property there. He bought it from the locals. He bought it. It wasn't gifted to him. He didn't steal it or anything like that. He actually bought it. And then he built an altar and gave it this name. God or the mighty God, comma, the God of Israel. God or the mighty God, comma, 
the God of Israel. That was the name of the altar. And why did he build an altar? Because he was worshiping God. And he was thankful to God for everything God had done in his life. The last 20 years plus. Many blessings of God. He commemorated it by this altar, by the name, and by worshiping him. Which is not a new thing. It's not a new practice of the patriarchs. We see other examples of it in Genesis 12, 7 and 8, 13, 3 to 4, and verse 18, 26, 25, and then even in Jacob's case again in 35, 1 to 4. In 35, 1 to 4, we do see that it is related to the worship of God and dedication to God. 35, verses 1 to 4. Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and live there, and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods which are among you, and purify yourselves and change your garments. And let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had, and the rings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. It was in relation to Jacob's gratefulness and dedication to God, to worship God in this way, building altars at certain places. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.